I'm Mei Lily Lee. Welcome to Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast, where we talk with experts to help you shape your worldview. These podcasts originate from longer video recorded interviews you can find at praxiscircle.com. Become a member by registering on the website and subscribe or follow this podcast so you can get our latest episodes. Today, it's the second of a four-part series featuring British author and social critic Oz Guinness. In this episode, Oz and Praxis Circle's Doug Monroe delve into observations on politics, freedom, and leadership in Europe and the U.S. Let's listen. Clearly, we're in a post-Christian Western age. But what's interesting is that the challenges don't come from total outsiders. In other words, alien civilizations. Our principal challenges are Western ideas that have gone elsewhere. So you take the greatest challenge today, which is China. Authoritarian, totalitarian China. And the two principal ideas that are shaping China right now are obviously Marxism, behind the Chinese Revolution, but more distinctively now under Xi Jinping, the thinking of Carl Schmitt, who was one of Hitler's greatest admirers, and he's behind the Chinese view of authoritarian nationalism. For example, the awful treatment of the Uyghurs or the house churches comes from the thinking of Carl Schmitt who was anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic in the 1930s. So you're looking at China and you can see Karl Marx and Karl Schmitt, two very European ideas that are our principal enemies today. And that's the irony of where the West is in its crisis. Boy, that's a really good answer, I'm telling you. You don't hear that a lot. You, you don't. That that's a, such an obvious statement that you never hear. I, I I'm I'm going to combine a couple of questions here, and uh, make a statement and get your reaction. I mean, a lot of people are getting a lot more um, pessimistic about America, uh, and uh, I'm not going to take take a position there myself. Uh, but it's it's almost as if we're extinguishing our light to the world that we may have had say 30 years ago or. 50 years ago. Um, and, and Europe is also kind of, I'm not sure where they're coming from or where they're going. They're feeling challenged for different reasons and so on. What do you think is going on with America um, as far as how we're viewed by, by the rest of the world? And could you juxtapose that a little bit to what's going on in Europe that you see? Is that too much of a question? It's a huge one. Yeah, yeah. Let's take America first. Okay, okay. You know, Max Dupree, in his thinking on leadership, used to say the first duty of a leader is to define reality. And I think that's missing today. And one of the key differences, America's deeply divided, I would argue, as divided as at any moment since just before the Civil War. But the difference is no Lincoln who addressed the evils of his day in the light of what he called the better angel of the American nature. In other words, to define reality in America, we've got to say, what is America? Is it a republic? Is it a democracy? Or is it just a big modern nation? 
I would argue the genius of America is its notion of ordered freedom, which comes through the Reformation from the Hebrew Torah. So covenant becomes constitution, and so on and so on. So you analyze America that way, clearly all the modern trends are undermining that notion of the republic. So the first crisis is the republic. Now I would go on from there to say America is also democratic. That's secondary to being a republic. But even democracy is failing now and we're seeing an emergent oligarchy. The gap between the elites, managerial, technocratic, and the people is huge. And you're closer now to an oligarchy than to a democracy. I would say, many people would disagree with me here, President Trump's ironic contribution was that in the disdain and the disgust and the hatred of President Trump, you see very clearly the emerging gap between the elites and ordinary people. And that's what's the key thing. He didn't cause it, but he's thrown light on it. So America now is already post-republic and increasingly post-democratic. Now, it doesn't mean America will fall. America could be just a wealthy, corporatist, technologically brilliant, modern superpower. But no longer the republic of the founders with its key notion of ordered freedom, or even a democratic republic in the older sense of a liberal state. So we're at a very, very interesting stage. Comment on Europe, same, same kind of question. Oh. Europe, as I said, is a cut flower civilization. So the Christian roots, say, of freedom, human dignity, gone. But Europe, out of its reaction to nationalism and World War II, has put all its eggs in the basket of the common market and now the European Union. So Europe has grown bureaucratic in its unity. And I think Europe is growing increasingly authoritarian and so it desperately needs an undergirding for human dignity, human rights, and for freedom and things like that. But what you can see is, ironically, as you know, President Macron of France warns the French about American ideas. But American ideas are French ideas which have gone further in America than they went in France. In other words, the French Revolution is the great event of the modern world. But it only lasted 10 years in France. And then came Napoleon, who said the revolution is over. But while the revolution is over in its original revolutionary form, it was like, as historians say, a huge volcanic explosion, and the lava flow is still flowing out. And there are three forms of the lava flow. The first one, in the 19th century is what's called revolutionary nationalism. Napoleon himself, the unification of Italy, even a contribution to the rise of secular Zionism, and importantly, national socialism, Carl Schmitt, whom I mentioned. The second great lava flow, designed in the 19th, 
bursting out in the Russian Revolution, 1917, and the Chinese in 1949, I was there, communism, revolutionary socialism. But what we're wrestling with here in America is the third lava flow, revolutionary liberationism, or cultural Marxism, or neo-Marxism, and that's what we need to understand here. You know, it is interesting in listening to you, I see if, if we're moving in the U.S. to the oligarchy, it's, it's a little bit like a, um, I don't think as thoughtful as the European Union actually is. We're, we're kind of crazy down the street here, I think. But uh, there's, some, there's some parallels, although we're getting to them different ways. Um, uh, so I have um, two, two related questions coming out of what you said. One is on the U.S., um, do, do you feel like we're really moving toward, um, say, a Chinese big brother type thing, or a cancel thing, a, a, a truly non-free speech, etc.? Is that? Do you see that? Do you feel that a little bit? Like, you know what I'm saying? I think to understand where we are, we need to put in place what uh, Reinhold Niebuhr would call the bookends of history. On the one hand, authoritarianism, all order, no freedom. And on the other hand, anarchy, all freedom, no order. Now, anarchy is unlivable, rather like Thomas Hobbes's The War of All Against All, where life is nasty, brutish, and short. It's unlivable. So people are prepared to give up some of their rights for order, control, and you put your eggs in the basket of Leviathan, which Thomas Hobbes calls the mortal god, of the state. In other words, anarchy leads to authoritarianism in a rebound. Now, take where America is today, 2021, 2022. I put it in three words. Revolution, oligarchy, homecoming. Revolution is the radical left, and I would say, please God, no. Oligarchy is what I mentioned earlier, this growing gap between the elites and the people, Hillary Clinton's deplorables, President Obama's people are clinging to their God and their guns, and so on. So the elite despises the populist for things like QAnon, conspiracy. But the populist despises the elite for their fake news, things like Russiagate. Now, both of those come from the crisis of truth, which is the product of the elite and postmodernism. So the intelligentsia in America have, let me put it carefully, think of George Floyd. The intelligentsia have knelt on the neck of truth and killed it through postmodernism. And the result is where we are today, a culture of hype, lies, and spin. The third option, and I would say to oligarchy, please God, no. The third option is homecoming. I'd never heard the word till I came to America, the way people go back to their alma maters in the autumn. That's not what I mean. The Hebrew word for repentance, that about turn of heart and mind, goes beyond the Greek. The Greek means an about turn, metanoia. The Hebrew, teshuvah, means homecoming. Because when we go wrong through lies or whatever it is, we're alienated, we're in exile. 
And when we return to God from repentance, we come home. America needs to come home to the best of its first principles. And that to me is the choice, revolution, oligarchy, or homecoming. Speaking of homecoming, um, uh, just comment on a conservative trend, you might call it with Brexit and maybe Virginia, uh, the, the, the election this month. Are, are you happy with any of that? What, you can comment on either or both, or are there green shoots anywhere? Um, yeah, I, I don't know whether you want to go on record about Brexit or not, <laughs> yes, so but it's up for you, up to you. <laughs> no, I, I'm English, and I personally supported Brexit because I thought the European Union was becoming a big, bureaucratic, one-party type of government, which is very dangerous. And I believe in, you know, George Washington had the wonderful notion of each person, going back to Micah, of course, in the Old Testament, each person living freely under their own vine and fig tree. In other words, in our day, the more crises we have, the more people think collectively, centrally, globally. But they reject the local. And that's very, very dangerous. So as an Englishman, I'm proud of the fact we're independent. And I don't believe in bowing to Brussels. And I think the European Union will eventually break up because Europeans will not be satisfied with it. Now, you've got to find a good solid position for the post-Brexit position. You can't just break away. You have to have constructive views of what Britain is today post-EU. And that's what's lacking. Now we're going to move on to... Do you want to go into Virginia? Uh, well, yes, I do, actually. I, yes. It's somewhat different. That's my short, short answer. Absolutely. Yours. Shoot. Virginia. I was very pleased that Glenn Youngkin is the governor-elect of Virginia. And he will restore Virginia to many of the first principles of the American experiment. And you can see how people were reacting, say, to the critical race theory in Loudoun County and the way the previous administrations had sidelined parents. Because as you know, take the sexual revolution. If you go back to its architects like Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, who gave us the term sexual revolution, he was quite clear they would not win and remember, they were out, and the book says very clearly, they were out to undermine 3,000 years of Western civilization. In other words, the Jewish roots, as well as the 2,000 years of the Christian roots. So he says, we have two enemies, and we won't win until we've overcome both. One, the church. But the other, less obviously, parents. And the reason the LGBT and others have called for, say, sexual education at three and four, and transgender movement wants to have that sort of thing very early, is you're sidelining parents and parental responsibility for children. Now, in contrast to that, you can see in the Old Testament, you can see in the early history of America, a free society needs three bedrock institutions families, schools, and places of worship, churches and synagogues. 
And there's a deliberate attempt to undermine all three of them. And if they are undermined, freedom is undermined. Because when you have the proper ordering of families and schools and churches and synagogues, you can have the proper ordering of freedom. And without them, you've got a crisis. Um, this, is, this is the long, remember that long statement I made about populism? Yeah. And I want to drill into your thinking on that a little bit more. And my own personal bias is, it's a confusing word. And, and the, the longer Trump was in office, the more I felt like people were using it. It, it, it sounded like that oligarchy that you were talking about that was yeah. using the word to, because the people didn't want to do what they wanted them to do. So how do you think about that concept, populism? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion now about elites and populists. And I think it's partly come out of the challenge of globaliz globalism. Globalization is a process. Globalism is a philosophy. Globalism favors the global at the expense of the local. And that's the trouble. And you can see going back to people like H.G. Wells, you know, who says we've got a problem with war, problem with nationalism. The only answer, a world republic. Global, the new world order, authoritarian. Freedom demands we have a balance between the local and the global. And that balance is very hard to keep. And the trouble is that the populace, we've forgotten in the biblical view, Jewish and Christian, leaders should have a great faith in their people and love their people as they lead them. Whereas today with our elites, they have a disdain for the people and that is extremely dangerous. So Hillary Clinton's deplorables or even George W. Bush, Bush talking about the foul stench of extremism, the elite disdain for the American people is a disaster. So we need a leader who believes in the people, who heals the gap between the leaders and the people so that you can really have something like a republic and a genuine democracy. So one example of this is, if you're a patriot today, you're called a nationalist. Now, as you know, George Orwell made a difference. Patriots are people with a love for their country, a love for their own place say, Wendell Berry style or whatever. Patriotism is wonderful. God has made us all diverse. Humans are the most diverse life form on the earth. We all live in different places and we have love for different places. We should be patriots. Nationalism is when you make an idol or a god of your nation. And that, of course, is very dangerous. But to dismiss all patriots as nationalists is crazy. I mean, some of our smart aleck historians have called me an American nationalist. I'm not even American, but I'm a believer in the best things of the ordered freedom of the American Republic. I'm not a patriot because I'm not American, but I do believe in Americanism at its best. And I'm certainly not a nationalist, but it's the globalist critique of patriotism that is called nationalism. So whether it's the elite disdain for ordinary people or the globalist disdain for patriots, 
there's a lot of confusion and we need to answer it partly by clearing up the terms, but also by healing the gap between leaders and the people they lead. You have a wonderful verse in the Old Testament for the leaders who lead and the followers who follow. There should be a natural element of leaders and followers together. Well, if, if they're uh, accusing you of that, I, I, would, I would submit they just haven't read enough of what, you, of what you've written because you're not doing that. That's very clear. Or I wouldn't be asking the questions for <laughs> clarification. Um, so this is, this is kind of, we'll come back to this in the very end a little bit, but just in short, you've got a lot of wisdom due to personal experience and seeing a lot of years, and, and I've got more than I want now too. Um, do you think we can hold it together in the U.S.? Uh, uh, and, and where I'm really getting, really having problems is, is really, it's not like the Civil War where you just draw a line and the two sides were totally different. Now it's rural versus urban, even within urban, it's, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I would argue the central clash is between ideas from the American Revolution 1776, and ideas from the French Revolution, 1789. Because if we look at postmodernism, tribal politics, identity politics, the LGBT sexual revolution, the cancel culture, all these things come from the ideas that have flowed down from the French Revolution. That's the division. But there's nobody saying it. So in the 1850s, Abraham Lincoln addressed the evils slavery, house divided, but he believed passionately in the Declaration, and he believed in what he called the better angel of the American nature. There isn't a single national leader today who addresses the current situation in that light. I'm absolutely appalled. So you take the presidents, the former president talked about make America great again. The current president talks about restoring the soul of America, but neither of them say what made America great in the first place. You know, Rabbi Sachs points out something wonderful. If you go to Washington, D.C. and look at the monuments, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, World War II, you're reading screeds of text the full Gettysburg Address, and so on. Now, compare that. If you go to London, to Parliament, to Westminster Square, you have three statues. The longest has three words, David, Lloyd, George. The second statue has two words, Nelson, Mandela. And the third statue, the big one, has one word, Churchill. Now, the point being that America is a nation by intention and by ideas. Britain isn't. France isn't. That's the distinctive thing about America. And yet you don't have presidents defending it today. That's the missing element. So it could be turned around in five years. If you had a, a president who understood what the republic is, where it's gone astray, and where it needs to be called back. The problem is, you. to me, it's patently obvious. To you, it is, because we've studied history quite a bit. It's actually true. 
uh, but it requires a sufficient level of knowledge that I don't know if anybody's getting anymore. Well, uh, Doug, let's you know, pick up that's, that's As our Jewish friends say, if any project takes more than a single generation, you need history and you need schools. So as the rabbis point out, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free after 430 years of slavery. Does he mention freedom? No. They're going to the promised land of milk and honey. He never mentions it. Three times Moses talks about children. Because the story we tell to our children is the key to the renewal of identity and continuity. Now, transfer that to America. You used to have the wonderful motto, a pluribus unum, out of many, one, out of diversity, unity. That was what the melting pot was. People were taught what citizenship was. It was called civic education. And that was thrown out at the end of the 1960s. And then, of course, it was replaced by a Howard Zinn view of an alternative history, and more recently by the 1619 Project. But let's put it bluntly. The Howard Zinn view and the 1619 Project are dead against all that the Republic was built to be. So to teach those is literally suicidal. If we continue teaching those in American public schools, America is finished. The Republic's finished. You've been listening to Oz Guinness and Doug Monroe on Building Worldviews, the Praxis Circle podcast. On our next episode, Oz discusses themes of several of his books and offers reasons for Christians to live an active faith. I'm May Lily Lee. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to podcasts and visit us at praxiscircle.com.